0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with John Hudak of the Brookings Institute about white marginalization. And after that, Drew Courtney from The People for American Way joins us to discuss President-elect Donald Trump's nominee for Attorney General, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Since the election of Donald Trump, much of the chattering class is focused on the marginalized white voter as key to Trump's victory. The resurrection of the forgotten man. Well, at least the forgotten white man. That might be a great novel for John Steinbeck, but does it get one to 270 electoral votes? My next guest, John Hudak of the Brookings Institute, thinks that narrative as it stands is too simplistic. Hudak recently penned a piece that you can find on the Brookings Institute website entitled, A Reality Check on 2016's Economically Marginalized. John Hudak, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, Your recent piece uh, that you wrote um, uh, for the Brookings Institute, um, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed and why we're having you on, uh, addresses who is truly marginalized and While I don't reject the analysis of the white working class, uh, what I gain from your piece is that the discussion did not go far enough. Uh, How so?
1: I I think your premise is exactly right. The white working class in the United States have been economically marginalized in some ways politically marginalized, too. What I think is the most unfortunate part of the post-election commentary is that the white working class has really been made out to be the only economically marginalized group or the only economically marginalized group that deserves attention or discussion. In reality, they are one part of a much broader group in the United States that includes women, communities of color, and young people who have been left behind in the recovery after the Great Recession and have faced institutionalized barriers to opportunity for Decades or even centuries.
0: So, why don't we why don't we begin? Because I know in the piece you also delineate this as well. When we use the term "white working class," who and and how is that defined? There's no really firm definition for what
1: white working class is. I think you know we can look at individuals or groups of individuals and know when they are not white working class, the wealthy in this country, probably the upper middle class, others. But to agree on a true definition of this term is more challenging. Uh, There are white working class people who make less than others. There are individuals from different sectors uh, that would fall into that category while others may not. I think oftentimes we think of white working class as an out-of-work manufacturer um, or someone working in a sort of trade. But the reality is that there are a lot of people from a lot of professions making a various amounts of money facing different types of obstacles who would fall into that category.
0: And wouldn't that also include... Um, Non college educated workers as well, or not, or could include them or not include them? I mean, it's
1: that's exactly right. I mean, there are non college educated workers in this country who are doing exceptionally well and are earning in very high income brackets. Uh, There are college educated individuals who are, uh, you know, in middling jobs and struggling to get by. And so, while I think uh, non college educated whites is one means of identifying the white working class, it's by no means a perfect definition because people fall inside and outside of those categories.
0: Well, given that uh, somewhat amorphous uh, definition, um, for obvious reasons that you just articulated, uh, do we have data that can make an accurate, accurate comparison to how, say, Hillary Clinton did with those voters versus Barack Obama in 2012, how Donald Trump did with those voters vis-a-vis Mitt Romney in 2012.
1: So I'm a a trained social scientist, and when you encounter this conceptual problem or this definitional problem, the best way to attack it is by throwing as much data as you can at it, creating different definitions and testing the questions that you want to ask against those different definitions to see if you get some kind of consistent answers. And so defining uh, the economically marginalized in a variety of ways uh, is is an effective path. And so in my piece, which you can find on the Brookings website on our FixGov blog, uh, I look at uh, uninsured rates. I look at unemployment rates. I look at wage disparities between certain groups to show that there are Some people in the United States who are doing well by a variety of definitions and people who are not doing well. And it turns out when you start to break those numbers down and you start to look at the types of groups who are actually economically marginalized, Donald Trump did very well with whites, but he didn't win most of the economically marginalized individuals in this country. The groups that suffer the most uh, in this country uh, overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly voted against Donald Trump, either voting for Clinton or a third party.
0: If you're just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with John Hudak of the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. John, you know, since America's inception, and you sort of touched on this already in some of your answers, in some order, every election could be a commentary on someone being marginalized. And black marginalization is probably the one we'd be most familiar with. Why does it feel, well, at least for me, that white marginalization this year was a greater phenomenon?
1: White marginalization this year was a greater phenomenon because Donald Trump so clearly reached out to those groups, spoke their language, uh, spoke uh, somewhat compassionately about their plight, and ultimately was elected president. I think if the election went in a different direction, if Hillary Clinton were elected president, you would have seen the conversation being about why uh, the white vote is not as important as Republicans believed it to be, and that non-white voters are uh, really beginning to control the political destiny of the United States. Now, you can say, well, those analyses, that analysis obviously isn't correct, but the number of voters who needed to move in the minimum number of states to switch the outcome of the electoral college is quite a small number. We're talking about, you know, 100,000 voters in the United States voting in a different direction would have given us a different president and ultimately an entirely different narrative. And so one of the points of my piece is to say, let's wait one minute before we start to assign this clear and obvious and certain explanation for what's going on in American politics and the economy and in demographics and take a step back and think about what these terms mean, who in our society is hurting the most, and what voting behavior those individuals had.
0: Um, Are we making perhaps or do you worry that we might be making too much of the white working class vote? And what I mean by that is that constituency alone does not get you to 270 electoral votes, and that seems to be where a lot of the discourse is trending.
1: That's right. The discourse is trending toward this idea that the political kingmakers in the United States are the white working class. Hillary Clinton won about a third of white working class voters. I mean, it was much uh, uh, poorer numbers than President Obama had four years ago and certainly eight years ago. But the idea that in future elections this is the group that will determine who the next president is uh, is is a bit off. In reality, there are levels of support uh, for Clinton uh, that had slipped from Obama's numbers among uh, women and African Americans and Latinos and others. And if you have small ticks up in voting behavior among those groups, you have a very different election. And this idea that the white working class should be the focus of all political rhetoric um, is, is, a, is a bit insane, frankly. That said, uh, I think there is an important lesson to be taken away from this, that if a, if a political party ignores part of its base or what used to be its base they do so at their own peril, and certainly if Clinton did better, um, slightly better among white working-class voters, she would be president-elect today. But I think this quick rush to have simplistic explanations for electoral outcomes in the United States is one that gives us serious misinformation in the present and in the future.
0: Well, based on that, your last response, it sounds to me that um, you're saying that Trump, the Trump's victory may be more of a narrative about connecting with certain voters in a very visceral way more so than actually addressing economic marginalization.
1: That, that's true. I think both of those things can happen simultaneously, and they should happen simultaneously. But, you know, for all of the conversation that has been had around Democrats turning their back on the white working class— very little has been made about Republicans turning their back on people of color, on women, on young people. And it's important to remember that Hillary Clinton is going to win the, ultimately win the popular vote by about 2 million votes. That is a, a significant number of Americans who went to the polls and voted for someone other than the president-elect. And when we look at the effects of turning your back on entire groups of people. There are political consequences to be had, and I think that a political victory does not wipe away those consequences, those challenges, and the real damage that can be done by ignoring significant margins of people.
0: Well, based on the data um, that, that, that you have, who might be some of the faces, and I say that plural, of economic moralization in America. Who are we talking about? We're
1: talking about communities of color, which by almost any economic indicator in the United States um, does poorly compared to whites. Uh, Now, that's not true of every person of color, and it's not true of every white voter, but on average, uh, the the gap, uh, the inequalities around wealth accumulation and wages and access to insurance and access to educational opportunities, uh, there are huge differences between whites and non-whites. When you look at unemployment rates in the black community, in the Latino community, and among young people in particular, and then also the intersection of those, right, young black males, young Latinos, uh, they are facing some of the most challenging and, and frankly, embarrassing, embarrassing for our country, uh, unemployment statistics in our society. Um, These are people, these are the faces of people who are uh, struggling, are challenged uh, by the economic conditions in which they're born into. My colleagues here at the Brookings Institution, Richard Reeves and Bell Sawhill, who I mention in my piece, they've done a ton of work on economic opportunity, economic mobility, and the barriers that exist around both for women and people of color. And it shows that if you're born into the lowest economic rungs of our society, the chances of you moving up to additional rungs, up to additional quintiles and other economic groups is diminished severely. That's unacceptable. And those are the faces of people who are struggling. White working-class voters have struggled too, but so have black working-class voters and Latino working-class voters and women and young people and other people in the lower um, economic uh, levels in our
0: country. Talk, expand on that, if you will. Talk about um, this marginalization with regard to women, because women invariably that also comes with having children, too. And, and so let's talk about that, if you will. Economic
1: marginalization is something that women have faced in this country um, since we've had a country, frankly. Uh, there are a lot of studies out there about the pay gap the compensation gap between men and women. And there are a lot of explanations for why uh, women may earn less than men. Uh, But at the end of the day, women tend to earn less than men uh, for the same work. Well, that's difficult, particularly for women who choose not to get married, um, for women who uh, choose to have children, whether they're married or not. Uh, Those uh, wage gaps can be Uh, devastating economically, and we have seen some progress for women toward narrowing that wage gap over the course of 50 years, but that gap still exists, and like I said, it is made worse for women of color, and uh, that's something that should be looked at as totally unacceptable, but also something that should be looked at as a symptom of a larger problem of racism, of Uh, gender inequality, and of the types of societal barriers that get not only put up, but then perpetuated over generations that keep people down, people of color, women, and others who deserve that kind of attention, who deserve the kind of political attention that Donald Trump gave to white working class voters, Uh, these other economically marginalized groups should be at the center of every conversation of every political candidate in the future.
0: You touched on it earlier, but I'm going to come back to it uh, because we've talked a lot about, in this conversation, about marginalization. Uh, and you mentioned health care sort of in passing, but, um, but health care has a role to play in this whole marginalization equation, does it? It definitely does. The Affordable Care Act
1: has expanded insurance opportunities for millions of Americans, and the progress that it has had on lowering the uninsured rate in the United States. Uh, cannot be denied. We are now at the lowest uninsured rate, um, really, in American history. But that 8.9% uninsured rate is not evenly distributed throughout the country. And so if you look at African Americans, if you look at Latinos, even if you look at young people, uh, people who have the ability to stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26, the uninsured levels among those groups is significantly higher than it is for whites. uh, And that's a challenge. And that creates additional economic uh, challenges uh, moving forward. Uh, If the only way that you can get health care is to go to um, an emergency room, or if you can't afford um, access to good health care, that is a, a challenge that affects every moment of your life. Then you go To the next layer, issues like preventive care that allow you to live a longer life or access to affordable contraception that allows you to plan families in more effective ways. For these groups that are already struggling, a lack of access to quality health care means that economic challenges fester, they mount, they multiply for the people in our society who are least able to absorb those economic challenges, and it just makes the situation all
0: that much worse. Well, rather ironically, because I I believe that President-elect Trump, um, one of his campaign pledges was to eliminate the Affordable Care Act. I mean, to do so, wouldn't that further the marginalization you just articulated? It
1: absolutely would. I I think one of the challenges right now, as we move toward the new administration, start to see the President-elect's team... Uh, see what kinds of policy proposals he is uh, interested in pursuing. The question is not necessarily will the Affordable Care Act be uh, demolished. The question is what will the post-ACA world look like? And there will be a lot of vulnerable Americans, actually a lot of already vulnerable Americans who will be made even more vulnerable by the removal of ACA. What is the government going to do with the situation that arises then? How do they solve these problems for people who have had uh, greater access to affordable health care and are capitalizing on that? And what, too, will the future system look like for the people who still, even under ACA, are struggling to get health care?
0: Those those
1: people shouldn't be forgotten either, but they seem to be. And what the next policy looks like has to be responsive to those realities.
0: And I'm also assuming, uh, in, your, in your last answer, that everyone who is a, a, a beneficiary of the Affordable Care Act did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Some of those people voted for Donald Trump. Yes,
1: yeah, certainly some of those people voted for, for Donald Trump. And uh, as he moves forward, I mean, we haven't even sworn the man in yet, but as he moves forward toward considering reelection part of those re-election considerations have to be accountability. How has he met the expectations of the 61 million people who voted for him on November 8th? Well, if some of those voters who uh, either liked the Affordable Care Act or actually depended on the Affordable Care Act but did not realize to what extent, if the Trump administration and the Republican Congress, through a repeal of ACA, create a situation in which lives get more difficult because of that repeal, it means four years from now it's an even harder sell for President Trump as he looks toward his next election. And uh, those are considerations that the president, uh, the president-elect needs to think of and one that Republicans in Congress need to think of too because, as you said, there were people depending on ACA who voted for Trump. There were people who depended on ACA who voted for Republicans for the House and Senate, too. This is all going to build into voters' considerations and the accountability with which they hold their elected
0: officials. Well, what I hear you saying, um, and, and my numbers might be off a bit, but I hear you saying it's a lot easier to vote some 60 times to repeal legislation when you know it has no chance of coming to fruition than it is when now you're responsible and you actually have to step up and repeal it.
1: Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Repeals and uh, platitudes and uh, political statements are easier than governing. And exactly what you said, Republicans knew that even if they were able to get an Obamacare repeal through both houses of Congress, overcoming the filibuster and everything, that it was waiting at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue with a veto pen. And so because of that, they could make these statements without really any consequences whatsoever. Well, now there's really nothing standing between them and an Affordable Care Act repeal. And so governing, governance issues are going to be critical to what the path forward looks like. And I think that's why in the early days of this uh, nascent, yet-to-be administration and in advance of the new Congress being sworn in, we've seen a little bit of a slow pace in answers to the questions not about whether ACA will get repealed, but what happens next. Because for the first time since the ACA was passed, Republicans have to think seriously about that. And now the ball is in their court.
0: So in the next, I won't even go four years, in, in, in the next two years, and um, where would you like to see the, uh, the direction of the political discourse in the next, say, next two years, at least to the midterms?
1: Well, first, it has to improve. I'm sure all of your listeners um, think that that the you know the attacks that we saw in this um, campaign, the lack of policy specificity, particularly on the Republican side, uh, on the uh, on Mr. Trump's side. That's not to group all Republicans together. That's unfair. Um, but on Mr. Trump's side, it really became insulting to the American public. I think you look at polls that came out today, uh, and and uh, talking with average Americans about their perceptions of the election. And I think whether you think Trump was more to blame or Clinton was more to blame, the reality is a lot of people were unhappy with the rhetoric in this campaign. So first off, that needs to improve. Second, I think you need realistic solutions to Americans' real problems. And there's often that disconnect between what Americans, average Americans want in what Congress thinks they need. It's a problem for Democrats, and it's a problem for Republicans too. And I think that the conversation moving forward, even though I don't think it's going to happen, the conversation moving forward, I think needs to be more uh, voter focused, more centered on how policy A, policy B, policy C, et cetera, is going to help the average American. Uh, Not simply saying, If we cut taxes, it creates jobs. Well, that's a nice statement, but explain to the American public exactly how that happens and what you need to expect from your government and from private businesses to make sure that those steps happen. And we have largely had a a multiple year period where those conversations have been entirely based in talking points and not policy realities. So those are the kind of changes that we need right now in our political discourse.
0: John Hudak of the Brookings Institute, thank you so much, sir, for being on the Public Morality today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That was John Hudak. Stay tuned as we discuss the nomination of Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions as the next Attorney General with Drew Courtney from People for the American Way. Welcome back. After the presidential election has concluded, until the president-elect takes the oath of office, one of the few measures by which one can assess the soon-to-be commander-in-chief is cabinet appointments. That said, many on the political left are concerned that President-elect Donald Trump has put forth Jeff Sessions as his choice for attorney general. Why is Sessions a lightning rod for those left of center? And shouldn't the president-elect be allowed to select his cabinet unencumbered by the wishes of those who oppose him? To answer these questions and more is Drew Courtney. Drew is Director of Communications for People for the American Way, located in Washington, D.C. Drew Courtney, welcome to The Public Morality.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's begin by framing the office of attorney general in terms of its power and its impact in the lives of Americans?
2: Sure. So uh, the attorney general is the head of the Department of Justice and the nation's chief law enforcement officer. And I think that's probably the easiest way to understand what he's doing is looking at all the federal laws that affect people and in all the different aspects of our lives. He is the person who oversees their enforcement. So that Includes everything from protecting the right to vote in federal elections. The Department of Justice oversees the country's immigration courts. Um, it enforces hate crime laws. It enforces antitrust laws that protect consumers. Uh, it is the agency that actually enforces federal environmental and conservation laws. Um, it plays a major role, as we know, on counterterrorism efforts. It, uh, internationally, it prosecutes human rights violations such as torture, war crimes, genocide, the use of child soldiers. And then we've seen that it helps to explore strategies for improving community police relations and reducing crime and advancing public safety. So almost any way in which individuals interact with federal law, which, which is in all different phases of our lives, um, the attorney general is going to have sway on that. And the thing to remember is that we interact with a lot of federal laws even when we don't know that we're interacting with federal laws. So when you go to vote and that process goes smoothly, Uh, I don't think we think of the fact that the Department of Justice has played a role in that, but in many cases it has. When you have safe drinking water, we don't think the Department of Justice helped this drinking water be clean, but in fact the Department of Justice has. So when you have someone like Jeff Sessions who could be put in, who has very extreme views on a lot of these things, that means that people could be impacted in ways that they really don't expect. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, a number of organizations, uh, including People for the American Way, have verbalized their concerns about the nomination of Jeff's, Jeff's Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, who you just mentioned, uh, to serve as attorney general. Um, say more, because you sort of touched on it in your previous answer, say more uh, why the backlash.
2: Well, I think uh, Jeff Sessions is probably the most extreme nominee for this position that we've seen in recent memory. He's someone who's staked out a far-right position in the Senate on issue after issue after issue, whether that's uh, torture or immigration. Uh, he aligned himself very early on with Donald Trump. And I think that you know, he has articulated a vision of the law that, frankly, has more to do with ideology than the law itself. I think that's probably the biggest concern that people have seen, is that he, he has a, a real agenda that he's been pushing, and it doesn't seem... Like, uh, that aligns with the role of the chief law enforcement officer. So take, for instance, uh, torture, which, as I said, is something that the Department of Justice would be involved in, is is how do we deal with allegations of torture? There were only eight senators who voted against legislation that would have clarified what we already knew, which was that torture was illegal. He was one of them. Um, This is someone who very early in his career as a U.S. attorney was using laws to protect the voting system to prosecute. Civil rights activists. Uh, this is someone who, when he was supporting Donald Trump, really brushed away uh, the substantiated allegations that Russia was hacking into DNC emails. So um, he's really shown that he's willing to push far beyond what the law allows. And on issues like immigration, like civil rights, he's constantly been on the very far right end flank. So when you think about someone who has really shown no commitment to these principles, to these laws, that the, civil, right, that the uh, civil Rights Division and the Department of Justice is designed to uphold, that's very frightening because he could do a tremendous amount of damage to things that most Americans care a lot about and could do it in technical ways that could be hard for them to recognize immediately.
0: Now, Senator Sessions um, was nominated by former President uh, Ronald Reagan in 1986 to serve on the federal bench. What happened?
2: So he was nominated. He was at the time a U.S. attorney for the state of uh, Alabama, And uh, when he – he was already kind of a shocking nominee because his claim to fame up to that point had been his use of uh, anti-voter fraud laws to very aggressively prosecute uh, civil rights activists in his state, including civil rights activists who had marched with and, you know, worked closely with Dr. King. So it was already surprising that Reagan was going to put someone who is – so extreme on this issue in line for a federal judgeship. I think it's worth remembering that Ronald Reagan, a Republican, nominated him for this federal judgeship, and the Senate at the time was controlled by Republicans. Uh, So this was a Republican Senate that he faced. And at the time, a whole torrent of allegations came out, many of which were substantiated, showing that he had a really atrocious record on civil rights, not just the voter uh, disenfranchisement, the voter suppression that he'd engaged in, But he'd said things like he'd praised the KKK and said, well, I used to think they were good guys, but then I found out that they smoked dope, and that was the thing that made me not like them. He said that the NAACP was an anti-American organization, and there were allegations that he had used racial slurs. He'd referred to uh, attorneys, uh, African-American attorneys, as boy in the office. He referred to a white attorney who was doing civil rights work as a disgrace to his race. So all of this came out. Uh, He had a very bad hearing. It seemed like he was being very disingenuous in reacting to these things. And so we actually saw Republicans crossing party lines to oppose him. And his own home state senator, uh, Hugh Heflin, who was one of the most, if not the most conservative senator who was a Democrat. He was a Democrat at the time, right? He was a Democrat at the time, also reversed himself and said, this person is unfit for this office. And he never made it out of committee. Uh, this was 1986. President Reagan had been in office for six years. This was the first judicial nominee that had not been confirmed, that had been defeated by the Senate, uh, and that's Jeff Sessions. He now sits on that committee, which rejected him 30 years ago.
0: Mm. And, and, and on that note, I mean, somewhat off the contrarian perspective might be, well, Drew, that was th- you know, 30 years ago. Are we going to hold people to something that happened three decades ago? How would you respond to that?
2: So I think, hey, I I believe in redemption. I know you do, too. Uh, Jeff Sessions has had 30 years to show that either we were wrong or to show that those comments were not reflective of who he is, of the views he holds, of of his attitude towards the law. And I think what I'd say is, again and again and again, he's shown that the Senate Judiciary Committee acted properly, that we really did get a full picture of who he was. So again, He's become a really strong and vicious opponent of immigration, not just illegal immigration, but of legal immigration. He's really attacked very vociferously. He's become one of the most anti-Muslim, anti-LGBT members of the United States Senate. Um, And again and again, he's shown that he has a strong anti-civil rights view. He praised the Shelby County decision when the Supreme Court gutted a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, So I don't think there's anything that he could point to in the last 30 years that shows that the judgment that the Senate Judiciary came to was incorrect. And so I do think it's fair that we judge him by the entirety of his experience. We judge him by what he was doing in the early 1980s. We judge him by what he was doing a month ago. And I think that conclusively shows at every point he is not fit to be our attorney general.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Drew Courtney, Director of Communications for People for American Way in Washington, D.C., Um, Drew, since you mentioned um, Shelby County, why don't you say more about that? What is Shelby County versus Holder, and um, what did the Supreme Court do?
2: So uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, like many laws, actually has different provisions, different sunset periods. So the Voting Rights Act actually needs to be reauthorized every several years. Um, And under George W. Bush, it needed to be reauthorized. I'd say there was a fight over it. There was some push, but in the end, this law was reauthorized uh, virtually unanimously. Um, and in the reauthorization process, Congress produced a really voluminous record showing that there was still racial discrimination going on in this country. That we still needed this law. Now, there's a provision uh, in the civil in the Voting Rights Act that says that certain mm-hmm. localities, states in the old Confederacy, but also uh, places up north, including New Hampshire, other places that have a history of disenfranchising voters, they need to pre-clear their changes to their voting rights laws with the Department of Justice. So if they're going to, say, put in voter ID, or they're going to redistrict, or they're going to change the time for voting, they have to go in advance to the Department of Justice and say, we're going to change this law. And the Department of Justice has to look at it and say, will this impact uh, disenfranchised communities adversely and then the Department of Justice can say you can go forward on this or you can't. What Shelby County did was they said you know what this provision doesn't work we think the people should be able to bail out of it it so they, they gutted the preclearance provision specifically the formula that said which states needed preclearance and which states and localities didn't need it and what we saw after that was that this opened the floodgates for places like North Carolina, for a lot of other places, that suddenly started putting into place all sorts of laws that they'd been forbidden from implementing while they were still uh, held accountable to to the Voting Rights Act. That meant things like shortening voting hours, making it harder to register, making it harder to get an absentee ballot, implementing voter ID plans, and all of this we've seen over the last several elections has had a real effect in preventing people from being able to vote. Now, Jeff Sessions, along with every single United States senator, voted for the Voting Rights Act when it was last reauthorized. But he praised this decision when he came down, uh, which declared this part of the law unconstitutional. I think that shows just how shallow his commitment to civil rights is. You know, he voted for that law along with every single other U.S. senator who voted on it, 98 to 0. He also did so because the NAACP was having its national convention at the time. And you know what? There was an enormous amount of pressure from civil rights groups that people could not make the wrong move on this. But as soon as he was able to, he was out praising the fact that the Supreme Court did one of the most destructive decisions it's done in the last 10 years and gutted the law.
0: Um, And uh, Senator Sessions is also opposed uh, to birthright citizenship, though it is protected by the 14th Amendment. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. So I think that this really falls into... This theme that we've seen, that when the law conflicts with Senator Sessions' ideology, ideology wins. So I actually have the 14th Amendment right here, and it starts off, I think, in a very unambiguous way. Yeah, go ahead and all read it. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, period.
0: Well, that first so, word uh, sort of sort of causes a conundrum, doesn't it, all?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is not supposed to be complicated. Uh, and, of course, the reason that we have this law is that during the, after the Civil War, in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, there was a move. It's referred to as the second founding of the United States to mean that there would be no permanent underclass in the United States. We would not allow people to be born and live their entire lives in this country and not have the full rights of citizenship. Jeff Sessions, in his anti-immigrant fervor, has really decided to attack this and say, oh, well, if you're the child of an undocumented immigrant, you don't get to be a citizen. This is preposterous, all right? This is throwing him directly in conflict with the Constitution's promise in the 14th Amendment. But it's also doing something that I think is really frightening. He is arguing the fact that people who have spent their entire lives in the United States, literally not a second anywhere but the United States, are not American, are un-American. He's attacked that principle. That is going to the core of the issues that were resolved in the years after the Civil War and I think is really, really dangerous. So again, we have someone who's trying to be our nation's chief law enforcement officer who's willing to brush aside the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. That should give people pause. And when senators say that that's okay, that they're going to stand for that, we need to remember that shows that their commitment to civil rights is, is as shallow as can possibly be.
0: And he's also open to uh, President-elect Trump's ban on Muslims as well.
2: Absolutely. And if you think about, again, what the 14th and the First Amendment say, you know, we have this principle that people of all religion and no religion at all, everyone is equally welcomed in our civic life. There is no exception in the 14th Amendment for Muslims or for Jews or for Christians or for atheists. Um, The idea that the government would be targeting people based on their religion is totally incomprehensible by constitutional standards. And yet we've seen Jeff Sessions uh, applaud this move. We've also seen over years that he's been willing to cuddle up with some of the most vicious anti-Muslim activists in the country. He's been willing to go to their conventions. He's been willing to praise them. The kinds of people who say that Islam is not a religion. Islam is a cancer. People can't be trusted if they're Muslim. He's really pandered into those bigoted conspiracy theories throughout his career. So the idea that he would be in a place of enforcing the laws that are supposed to protect people regardless of religion should be really troubling, not only to Muslims, but to anyone who cares about that principle. Um, You know, we see these things starting with targeted communities. They never stop with targeted communities. And it should be really uncomfortable that Sessions, who's who's said that this seems to be an all right plan, would be allowed in this position.
0: And... um where, and where is Senator Sessions on LGBT equality?
2: <laughs> he's about where you'd expect. Uh, you know, He has, throughout his career, been very clear that he's opposed LGBT equality on a policy level. He fought hard to maintain Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which allowed service members to be discharged simply because of who they were and forced out of the armed forces, otherwise to keep their lives completely hidden. He was vociferously opposed to any kind of hate crimes protection that would defend LGBT people. And I think maybe even most concerning is that he was raising concerns about the possibility of a gay person becoming a Supreme Court justice, which unfortunately I think fits in a little too neatly with the attacks that Donald Trump was levying against a Mexican-American who was becoming a federal – who was a federal judge. Right. This idea that someone – is unfit for a position in our government because of who they are, because of where their parents came from, I think is really deeply troubling. And it shows a lack of commitment and a really off-base principle that we're going to see infecting a lot of his other decisions. I don't think that Jeff Sessions should be in charge of enforcing our hate crimes laws. I think that that is a really problematic situation that we're in, but that's where Donald Trump is putting us now.
0: And for, for me, our listeners could be listening, saying, "Well, Byron, you're just giving uh, Drew a bunch of softballs and hit, hit out of the park." Uh, explain. You've sort of touched on it, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to tie it together. Explain why, um, when we went through this list with Shelby County and with birthright citizenship and with Muslims and, and the LGBT community, within the fabric of America, why do these things matter?
2: Well, I think these are things that speak to really deep constitutional principles. These are things that traditionally, I think, have united liberals and conservatives. These ideas that people uh, have a right to participate in our government, that we have a democratic process that mediates our conflicts, and the fact that we have laws that we all have to live by, the fact that we have a constitution that guides our system. These are not controversial positions. Uh, I don't think that these are things that should be particularly objectionable. I think, frankly, this is why if we had any other president besides Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions would be a laughingstock as a nominee. Um, this is not someone who is seriously considered for attorney general by any other nominee. Um, this is not someone who was on anybody's shortlist other than Donald Trump, but he got in with Donald Trump really early. So I think this is part of a real threat to the constitutional system that we've set up that's coming from Trump, from the way that he's trying to do business in the White House, and that it deserves a very, very strong response, not just from progressives but from everyone who cares about making sure that our democracy works
0: again playing playing the role of the contrarian um I would say to you, okay drew, but he, he, here's the juice: Trump won, doesn't he get to nominate whoever he chooses what what, what happened whatever happened to the victor gets the spoils? you would say.
2: Well, I would say that I think there's probably a difference between the victor goes the spoils and getting to nominate anyone you want. Yes, he gets to nominate anyone you want, although I would make sure that we point out we had more people vote for a Democratic nominee for President Hillary Clinton than voted for Donald Trump. We had more people vote for Democratic senators than who voted for Republican senators, and it looks like, although the numbers aren't completely in, we had more people voting for Democratic House members than voted for Republican House members. So I think he should be very careful about assuming what kind of mandate he has. The other thing is there is a confirmation process for a reason. There's a reason why the Constitution doesn't simply allow the president to put in whoever he wants in any position throughout the federal government. We have checks and balances, and that is to defend the democracy, the democratic, and the constitutional structure that our Constitution puts in place. It's so that we can check people like Jeff Sessions, who are being put in a law enforcement capacity, who have shown that they cannot be trusted to perform law enforcement duties. Look. I understand how this process works. I see that there are Republicans who have seats in the Senate, and they have the Senate leadership. We are in this fight because it is so important that we need Republicans to get on our side anyway because this is not a partisan issue. This is a principled issue, and we need to make sure that they understand that the values that most Americans voted for, including, I would wager, people who voted for Republicans, would be deeply, deeply imperiled by Jeff Sessions in the Department of Justice, and it is worth taking a stand in order to fight against that.
0: In a few minutes we have left. I want to just turn the corner a little bit and talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Uh, we're going to have. Looks like we're going to have a Supreme Court nomination. Um, you know, in my view, Republican uh, Republican Senate circumvented the Constitution uh, in their role of co- advising consent by not um, uh, having hearings for uh, 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 Judge uh, Merrick Garland. Um, and, and subsequently they were rewarded with control of the White House and Congress. Have we established a new standard?
2: Well, I think that is yet to be seen, but I do think that Republicans need to understand that they've fundamentally changed the way nominations will be processed in this country. They absolutely abdicated their constitutional responsibility. There's no question about that. Um, I think that they went... Far out of their way, they acted in what is clearly an extra-constitutional manner that the Constitution itself does not contemplate in order to try to force someone onto the court who would uphold their policy preferences. all right? They want people who will uh, gut more campaign finance laws and make it easier for billionaires to buy elections. They want people who will make it harder for workers to defend themselves and their rights at work. They want someone will make it harder for civil rights laws to be enforced. They want those policy outcomes. If they think that progressives and Democrats are simply going to go back and roll over and allow them to place another extremist on the Supreme Court, well, let me tell you, they've got another thing coming. Uh, Because I do think that they have fundamentally changed the rules of how this process goes, and they need to live with that. I think that that was a destructive move on their part. I think it's a destructive move for our country. But I think it would be absolutely inappropriate for Democrats to respond by simply allowing them to pack the court with someone who's going to be pushing an extreme far-right agenda which looking at the list that Donald Trump has proposed is what they are trying to get um, and we are going to have a big big fight over whichever nominee they put forward and uh, I think we stand uh, there's going to be a, a clear reckoning around this issue and I think that with with energizing, with the organizing energy that is out there right now, we stand a very, very real chance of winning that fight.
0: Well, you, you, you talked about the fight, so um, if you were advising the Democratic Party, I mean, how, what would that fight look like? How, how can they stop um, which many would say is inevitable?
2: Well, I think that there's a couple things going on. First of all, I think that, look, Donald Trump is the president. Donald Trump should nominate someone. President Obama, when he was given this opportunity, almost a year ago, when he's had a year, nearly a year left in his term, responded by putting forward a consensus pick, someone who Democrats and Republicans alike have praised.
0: Who's breezed through Trump. the nomination process. What's that? Who, who essentially, Merrick Garland essentially breezed through the nomination process. In,
2: in any sane universe, he would have breathed through the process. You know, we had not just people like Orrin Hatch, uh, other folks who have really gotten to bat saying how, deeply respected he is. John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, has praised him. Um, you know, we had people like Carrie Severino, who runs the right-wing Judicial Crisis Network, who said a few years ago, he is the best we can possibly expect from Obama. She was calling for him to be nominated. And then when they decided that they were going to have a, an unprecedented, unconstitutional blockade, suddenly the story changed. Suddenly they started saying, well, this isn't okay. I highly recommend that Donald Trump look for someone very much in that same mold. And if I might make a modest suggestion, I think he should look very hard at Merrick Garland. (laughs) Merrick Garland continues to be the most qualified person on the federal bench, probably the most qualified person nominated to the Supreme Court in our lifetimes. He continues to be someone who both conservatives and liberals have looked to as an authority who is unquestionably fair-minded and who Democrats and Republicans have praised. If Donald Trump decides to do something different, if he decides to put someone like Sam Alito on the court who has gone out of his way again and again and again to be pushing not just a conservative agenda on the bench, but a Republican partisan agenda for the bench, then Democrats have a lot of authority that they can use in the Senate. They still have the ability to filibuster this nomination, but frankly, I think more to the point, we should be making sure that Republican senators really sweat this one. They need to hear immediately from constituents that it is unacceptable for Republicans to steal the Supreme Court in this way. And I want to remind people, folks like Jeff Flake and Dean Heller in states that uh, have large, for instance, Latino voting populations, they are up for election in two years. Susan Collins is going to be up for election soon. She's she in has, Maine
0: and um, she's in Maine. Flake's
2: are, in – In Arizona and Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There are Republican senators who need to hear loud and clear from their constituents that it is simply not acceptable for them to rubber stamp this scheme to force the Supreme, to, to force a conservative on the Supreme Court. And I – looking at the energy that's out there right now, looking at the people who are out there in the streets self-organizing on these issues, I am very optimistic that we are going to be in a very good place to fight that nominee hard and to win.
0: But it, it, seem, it seems, though, um, in, in one respect, one could argue that the damage has been done because we're now having a majority in the Senate means absolutely nothing unless you have 60 votes. So now it's not even having a majority. It's having a uh, filibuster-proof majority uh, in order to uh, get anything done. Is, is that now the, the standard? Are we, are we doomed to that or are we ever going to get back to the well, way things once were?
2: So there have been some changes. So, for instance, we, the filibuster only applies to Supreme Court judges now. So lower federal court judges, they'd only need 50 votes, the same for uh, executive branch nominees. Um, I think we could go back to a place where we're in a more reasonable place, but I think what we have to do is get to a place where uh, folks are willing to have honest conversations. And, uh, and I think in order to do that, there needs to be a real reckoning about the fact that we have had asymmetric polarization. So when you see Republicans lining up en masse to oppose someone like Merrick Garland, you cannot say the Democrats and the Republicans are equally guilty of extremism in this case. Um, that is simply unacceptable. It's not reasonable. Um, facts have to matter in some basic way. So you know, if we were in a different situation, we could have a Republican president who is saying, I want to work together on things like an infrastructure bill in a way that everyone can get behind. That can't be a scheme to just give handouts to developers. But there are issues on which people can come together. And in order for that to happen, the Republican Party is going to need to deal with the fact that it's, it's gone so far off the edge that it's really broken the process. I think we can get to that phase. I think we're a little ways away from it.
0: Drew Courtney, thank you for being on the public rally today.
2: Thank you so much for
0: That was Drew Courtney. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Last week, the streets of Little Havana in Miami were largely jubilant at the news that Fidel Castro had died at the age of 90. The Cuban dictator finally succumbed to life's ultimate common denominator. Though Castro, nearly a decade ago, turned power over to his brother Raul, he remained the face of tension between the United States and Cuba. Castro survived the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the Cuban Missile Crisis, assassination tips under Operation Mongoose, economic sanctions imposed by the United States, and 11 presidential administrations. However one feels about Castro, the fact is his crimes were not as heinous as Pinochet in Chile, Samosa in Nicaragua, the Duvaliers in Haiti, or Chirio in the Dominican Republic. But they were all allies of the United States. Regardless of their obvious violation of human rights, they were opposed to communism, and that's all that mattered during the Cold War. But the Cold War is over, and Castro is dead. What does his death mean going forward? Will the United States, under a President Trump, continue the normalization started under President Obama, Or will America retreat back into the Cold War cauldrons of inactivity? What path should America pursue if the goal remains to seek that more perfect union?